your thinking will be shaped by influences, will always be shaped by influences outside of you. It will either be God and His Word, or it will be Satan and the ideas that He has established and is directing in the time period in which you live. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing our current series with part six of Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. In Romans 12:2, the Apostle Paul charges his readers to not allow their thinking to be conformed or shaped by the spirit of the age, that is, the prevailing thoughts, philosophies, and opinions of their time. And today, Tom will continue to examine a few of the prevailing thoughts and philosophies of our time and the ramifications of those beliefs. As you'll learn, they are all ultimately contrary to God's Word, and they ultimately trace back to Satan himself, the God of this age. But how do you keep yourself from being shaped by the philosophies of this world? Let's open our Bibles and discover more from God's Word as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Listen to Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Ingrid Newkirk wrote this, There is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig is a dog, is a boy, end quote. What that practically manifests itself in is this. Man is no more valuable than any other animal. That's what they would say. You know, I saw a video of Ray Comfort, uh, an evangelist, asking college students in California, oh, those Californians, asking questions to expose the ethical implications of evolution. And one of the questions was this. If you saw your dog and your next-door neighbor both drowning in a pool, which would you say first? Several students struggled in this video to answer, which frankly in and of itself is disturbing. But a number of the students went on to say that they would rescue their dog before their neighbor. Why? Because they bought into the mindset of the age. Man is just another animal. That dog has every bit as much value as a person. Is that what the Bible says? Of course not. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Matthew 12, verse 12, our Lord says this, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Don't you dare for a moment think that human beings and animals are on the same par. God made man in his own image, and man is far more valuable than animals. By the way, Jesus says that about other animals. He says it about birds, etc. Another implication of this species equality is that no sexual behavior is sinful. No sexual behavior is sinful. I mean, if animals do it, why can't people Again, Scripture's clear. Ephesians 5, verse 6, Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of sexual sins, he's just listed them in the previous verse, because of these sexual sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Not only are there sins when it comes to man's sexual behavior, but that is why God's wrath is coming. Another sort of fruit of this idea of species equality is it is morally wrong to use animals for food or clothing. Now, I want you to take a test here how much you've been influenced by the spirit of the age. Do you think it is morally wrong to use animals for food or clothing? Some would say it's wrong to eat meat. Again, the people for the ethical treatment of animals argue that killing an animal for food is murder and that eating an animal is tantamount to cannibalism. Is that what the Bible says? Genesis 9.3, God says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, end quote. It's, others would say it's wrong to use the skins of animals for clothing. Again, listen to God, Genesis 3.21 the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God was the first one to take the life of an animal to clothe man. Of course, we need to care for animals. We need to be careful in our treatment of them. Righteous people do that according to Proverbs. But they are here according to God for the benefit of man who is made in God's image. Don't buy into the mindset of the culture. Practical ramification of naturalism is environmentalism. If there's no God and man is the highest animal on this planet, then not only is he a steward of the planet like the Bible tells us we are, but he becomes its destroyer or its savior. You're taking too much on yourself at this point. Listen to Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22. The Lord said to himself, I love that. God talks to himself. The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Listen to this. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease, end quote. Again, we need to be good stewards of everything God has given us, including the planet. But don't you for a moment think that puny mankind can destroy something that God has said is going to be preserved. 2 Peter 3, 7, by His Word, by God's Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept by God for the day of judgment. A seventh practical ramification of naturalism is scientific certainty. It goes like this, all the postulates of modern science are empirically proven, universally accepted, and certifiable reality. Empirically proven, they mean by using only the strictest standards of the scientific method and human reason, they have arrived at their conclusions. Universally accepted, they mean all experts who are faithful to the scientific method have arrived at these conclusions and certifiable reality, their conclusions are true and their theories are certain to have occurred just as they propound them. No rational person would ever conclude otherwise. The truth is, science and the use of the scientific method has a very mixed track record. If I had time, I'd get into that. 
I did in an earlier series, but let me just put it this way. Only God's Word is certain truth. And every idea or fact apart from the Bible that claims to be true is potentially suspect. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. The totality of God's word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Our Lord put it this way in John 17, 17, your word, Father, is truth. Beware of naturalism. Don't let it shape your thinking. A second philosophy that permeates our culture that's part of the zeitgeist of our age is humanism. Democritus, in the 400s BC, is the earliest philosopher that taught a hedonistic philosophy. Democritus argued that the supreme goal of life was what he called contentment or cheerfulness. A hundred years later, Epicurus came along, and Epicureanism began to teach that pleasure is the greatest good and man's highest goal. Now, don't misunderstand. Contrary to popular belief, Epicurus did not teach that happiness was found in wild, outrageous living. Originally, he taught that the highest pleasure is found in personal tranquility and freedom from fear, a simple life pursuing personal peace. Fast forward to the 1700s, and you find that this idea is still very much alive and well. The French philosopher Voltaire writes, pleasure is, listen to this, pleasure is the object, the duty, and the goal of all rational creatures. After the advent of Darwinism, the main proponent for man's happiness as the goal of life became humanism. Humanists wrote their first manifesto in 1933 and a second humanist manifesto in 1973. Listen to a quote from the second, written in 73. Happiness and the creative realization of human needs and desires, both individually and in shared enjoyment, are continuous themes of humanism. We strive for the good life here and now. The goal is to pursue life's enrichment, by which they mean their own life's enrichment. Reduced to its simplest and most individualistic expression, humanism simply teaches this, the end of all being is the happiness of man. Once again, this philosophy didn't stay in the classroom. It didn't stay in the halls of academia. There were practical ramifications of this. Let me just give you three to think about. First of all, there is personal fulfillment. You hear this everywhere. Since my happiness is all that matters, the most important goal in life is my own personal fulfillment. This is what our world lives for. Listen to our Lord in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Not personal fulfillment, but loving God. Another ramification of humanism I'll call democratic morality. Democratic morality, since man and his happiness is the measure, a consensus of the majority determines morality. We decide together what's going to make us happy, and if we vote for it, then there you go. That's moral. That's what's happened recently in the last 10 years with regarding the legislation regarding homosexual marriage. 
Listen, the Bible begins with the principle that people are fallen and perverted and incapable of determining or doing what is good. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And here he he encompasses us all. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Listen, if we're all morally useless, then how in the world do we decide what's moral? Humanism has also produced an anti-authority attitude. Sometimes it's expressed, often it's just implied, but it goes like this, no one has the right to curb or question my pursuit of self-fulfillment. Listen, God says He has put authorities in this world to do exactly that. Your parents are given to you to direct your life toward the right ends and to curb your self-fulfillment. Government exists for the same point. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Beware of being shaped by the philosophy of humanism. It's part of the ether of our times. A third philosophy is Marxism and socialism. This is becoming increasingly potent in our culture. Webster defines Marxism as this, the system of economic and political thought developed by Karl Marx along with Frederick Engels, especially, here it is, the doctrine that the state throughout history has been a device for the exploitation of the masses by a dominant class. That class struggle has been the main agency of historical change, and that the capitalist system, containing from the first the seeds of its own decay, will inevitably be superseded by a socialist order and a classless society. What's that looking like today? What are the practical ramifications of the acceptance of that mindset? Well, there is the immorality, and notice that word, the immorality of personal or corporate wealth. There are people in our culture saying it is immoral to have wealth. Wealth is inherently sinful, and it can only be obtained or attained by the oppression of others. Now, don't misunderstand. Clearly, there are those who get their wealth by the manipulation and oppression of others. James 5 is very clear about that in many other texts as well. It happens, and God will judge those who do so. But the the mere presence of wealth doesn't imply that. In fact, the Scripture is clear in Deuteronomy 8, God is the one who gives the power to get wealth. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, listen to this, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God is the ultimate source of wealth and distributes wealth. Education of Marxism that's becoming increasingly popular, it's, it's a part of the, the zeitgeist of our age, is the moral imperative of government intervention in this abuse. Government should own and or redistribute the resources to all and do so more fairly. Is that a biblical mindset? No, the, the biblical mindset is one of private ownership. 
and personal labor. So you have Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10, describing what will happen during the millennium, during the thousand years in which our Lord righteously reigns on this planet. It says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. We will have private ownership. And frankly, while I can't prove it to you from Scripture, I don't see any reason to doubt that there will be private ownership in the eternal state. Come to the New Testament, and what does Peter say to Ananias in Acts chapter 5? He says, before you sold that land, was it not your own? And even after you sold it, weren't the proceeds yours to do with as you chose? There's a fourth and final philosophy that dominates our time, and it's postmodernism. Postmodernism is a label for the prevailing intellectual mood and perspective in Western society today. It's a perspective that began in the early 1970s. I won't take you through all that can be said about postmodernism. Let me just reduce it to two simple beliefs. Postmodernism believes, number one, that truth does not exist. And if it does in some way, you can't be certain that that is the truth. In other words, postmodernism denies that there is any objective proposition or truth claim that is universally, eternally true, particular circumstance or in a particular time or to a particular person. Secondly, postmodernism, not only does it say there is, there's no truth, truth doesn't exist, but it says there is no universal explanation, they use the word meta-narrative, of meaning that explains the world and explains reality because there is no purpose, there is no meaning. At its heart, postmodernism is a rejection of truth and certainty. Again, postmodernism filters down in some very practical ramifications. First of all, there is pragmatism. Since there's no absolute truth, each individual in each circumstance or the culture as a whole gets to decide what is practically true or what works. In other words, we're back to pragmatism. If it works for you, believe it. Scripture's clear that truth doesn't work like that. Psalm 119 verse 89 Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, superseding truth. A second expression of postmodernism is, is the denial of the law of non-contradiction. We live in a culture when two contradictory ideas can both be true. I don't know about you, but it bugs me on television when, when you know, they're, they're interviewing people and, you know, they're, they're telling, they're saying exactly the opposite things. And and together they're having a group hug and affirming that they're all right. What is true for you, they say, may not be true for me. Listen, the Scripture is clear that there is such a thing in the laws of logic as the law of non-contradiction. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 says, no lie is of the truth. Truth and lies are mutually exclusive. A third expression of postmodernism is gender identity. Gender identity says people are whatever gender they claim to be, regardless of contrary evidence. Now, I am compassionate toward those who struggle with this. This is a real struggle in the human soul, just as all the other struggles that we experience in a fallen world. But understand, this is part of postmodernism, that you can have physical characteristics that mark you as a certain sex and you can believe that you're a different sex, and both can be true. That's postmodernism. It's illogical. 
Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Postmodernism is religious inclusivism. There are many ways to God, and they're all true. Jesus reigns on that parade pretty seriously in John 14.6 when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Now, folks, those are some of the prevailing ideas of our times, and they're all contrary to the Word of God, and they ultimately trace back to Satan himself, the God of this age. We are called to reject the thinking of our age totally. Look again at our text, Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this age, to its mindset, to its way of thinking, to the zeitgeist of your times. Now, what are the implications of this command in the first half of verse 2? Let me give you four of them real quickly, and we'll be done. Here are the implications. Number one, there are no truly independent thinkers. You know, we, we all like to think of ourselves like that. Get over it. There are none. You're not, I'm not. Did you notice in this text, your thinking will be shaped by influences, will always be shaped by influences outside of you. It will either be God and His Word, or it will be Satan and the ideas that He has established and is directing in the time period in which you live. Those are the two choices. There are no truly independent thinkers. Number two, The prevailing mindset of our times constantly assaults us and tries to push us into its mold. Do you understand this is going on constantly, every day, relentlessly? I'm not the only one preaching to you. In fact, you are being preached at every waking moment with the zeitgeist, the mindset of the age. You are being sold it in every conceivable way. It comes from the educational system, the entire educational system. It starts with educational children's books. I saw a couple of books this week attempting to teach children about gender identity. It's kindergarten through the doctoral level. It comes in peer-reviewed journals, in published papers, in research. It comes at us through the media, newspapers, magazines, the internet. It comes through entertainment, through video games, through movies, through television programs, through YouTube videos. It comes at us through social media. Let me tell you something. Russia is not the only one trying to use social media to influence your thinking. Satan is. He's, con- he's built a system to do that to you. Facebook, Twitter, texts from friends. Everyday conversations with your friends and acquaintances, you are being subtly sold the philosophy of the age. It comes as well from our own thoughts and our conclusions about the issues of our times. How many times do we hear ourselves saying something like this, well, I think, who cares? Who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? The question is, what does God think? God holds us responsible to identify the flawed thinking of our times and refuse to be shaped by it. As we saw in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in view of God's mercies to us in Christ, verse 2, our minds belong to Him. And to honor Him, we must continually, constantly resist and reject the thinking of the age in which we live. 
Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And number four, our thinking about everything must be directed and determined solely by the revelation of God in His Word. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that you don't have a right to think about the issues of our time the way you think? Body and mind. And you have here in His Word the mind of Christ, and you are to think about everything that goes on in this world like He thinks. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. Tom will have part seven for you on our next broadcast. Do join us then. Well, Tom, it seems everyone has an opinion about everything. But for many who say they believe, their opinions may have actually been shaped by today's prominent philosophies without their even knowing it, correct? You know, Bill, that's exactly right. So many Christians think that there are all of these neutral ideas out there, not realizing that ultimately all of the spiritual concepts, the ideologies, the philosophies that exist can be traced back either to God or to Satan. It's so important that you examine what you believe and ask yourself, is this what the Scripture teaches? If it's not, then it's so important to realize that you may very well have embraced something that is opposed to God, that's been set forth by his archenemy, Satan. May God help us to think biblically. Thanks, Tom. And friend, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.